If you just finished up last week's episode and you heard that phone call with Bob Skelton, we've got more of it. Stick around after this episode. We'll tell you how you can hear it. Charles Wakefield froze right in front of me. I'd invited him to lunch at a barbecue joint I like. We were just about to walk in. He stopped talking, stopped moving, like his feet were stuck to the tar in the asphalt. So I pull up in the parking lot a little bit ago, and I've gotten to know you pretty well. And now I can tell when you're not comfortable. I can tell when you're comfortable. You're pretty comfortable right now, but I can tell when you're not comfortable. And so I saw that you were uncomfortable. I'm like, all right, we've eaten here before. I don't, I mean, he's, Charles usually isn't picky with his food. Later that day, during a private interview behind closed doors, I asked Wakefield about what happened. Greenville County Sheriff Car pulled up, just bringing back a lot of negative memories. You know, you, you, you never know when you'll be confronted and, you know, they, they ask you for your ID and figure out, you know, oh, by the way, you know, this is, this is Charles Wakefield. I'd watched Wakefield's eyes in the parking lot. They were fixed on a spot right over my shoulder, and I tried and failed to look casual turning my body back to the right just enough to see the dark blue Greenville County Sheriff's Cruiser. A deputy was sitting in the driver's seat and clearly, or at least clearly to me, had no interest in us. He was probably thinking about the pulled pork. Charles Wakefield was not. You're just coming to have lunch with, with me. That's it. And you, but you see a sheriff's car and all of a sudden you don't want to eat there anymore. No, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, maybe, maybe there's a better place to go. There wasn't a better place to eat nearby, but for Charles Wakefield, there was a better place to be. So we went to a Greek place for lunch. Charles had lamb, I had some soup, it was fine. It wasn't a better place to eat, but it was a place Wakefield did not have to see a hungry man with a badge. It was almost like a natural reaction, you know, because we, we were basically just standing there, but you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm you know, like real uncomfortable. I'm totally focused on him, you know, because he's like directly in front of me. All of a sudden he's directly in front of me and I'm like, okay, you know, uh, don't want to eat here. Not today. I joked. It was a shame. We'd missed out on some good barbecue. Wakefield agreed, but helped me understand what, in his mind, the real shame of it was. It's a shame that after 44 years, it's not over. In 2019 Greenville, that phrase, it's not over, stands out. Like a man with his feet stuck in the tar while the lunch rush moves around him. Because according to the official record, the Looper murder investigation, the Wakefield conviction, everything in between, all of it's over, it's done, finished, it's history. But for Charles Wakefield, nothing is over. In many ways, he feels like he did those first two months after they arrested him. In that first, you know, five, six months, seven months, whatever, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, this is all gonna be over soon if I just stick with it? Or were you thinking, even back then, I'm never getting out of this? I felt trapped. I felt like I wasn't gonna survive it. I felt like pretty much over my head, out of control. Worse than trapped, Wakefield felt like he'd given himself up, just like he'd stood stuck in the parking lot. He didn't move the night police came to get him. He was in bed with his wife, Mary Ann, and her sister called to say the police were looking for him. He said, send him over. Wakefield thought he had nothing to fear, 
The thing about it was that when, when Marianne's sister called, I knew I hadn't done anything. So, because I had the option, I could have said, no, nah, don't tell them where I'm at. And I could have left. I, I, I sat there for like almost a half an hour waiting on them. I waited so long until I didn't think they was coming. One night, I sat with Wakefield's cousin. His name's Eddie Cruel. In 1975, he was in the service. When word reached him, the detectives had charged his cousin Charles with murder. When you're out in the service and you're hearing the bad news that's coming in, what is your family telling you and how are they reacting to the fact that, that this is happening to him? It was kind of par for the course because in a way, where we grew up, they'll find somebody to blame it on. And so kind of in a way, it was kind of what this time they happened to be Charles. If you ask Eddie, Wakefield was the unlucky black man. Outside of lead detective Jim Christopher's informant dropping Wakefield's name, Charles Wakefield had no clear reason to be on the cop's radar for the murders. One day, I tried very hard to get Wakefield to tell me why he thought Jim Christopher targeted him. I mean, they didn't have anything at all. And I, like there was no, there was, no one had said you'd done it. No one had seen you there. No one had seen any of this, but they were still coming after you that hard. And I, I, can't figure, I can't figure out why Christopher was so, you know, intent on coming after you. I think that he was trying to get somebody else. And I think it didn't play out. Over the years, Wakefield suspected he wasn't Jim Christopher's first target. But he couldn't figure out who was. Wakefield was too busy trying to convince people he was not the one who killed Greenville County Drug Lieutenant Frank Looper and Looper's father Rufus. Police managed to build a case against Charles Wakefield Jr., but he wasn't the only one they built a case against. Now, he wasn't the only one at all. In fact, there was a man, a convicted murderer, who escaped prison and was on the run at the time of the Looper murders. His name is inked throughout the police file, crossing this way and that, like an interstate highway system and a giant atlas. The only difference was that man's road, unlike Charles Wakefield's, didn't end at death row. Every eyewitness who saw someone running away from the Looper garage on January 31, 1975, they agree they saw a black man running away, or at the very least, a person they believed was a black man. And no one faults police for canvassing Greenville looking for a black man. My name is uh, Emmanuel Nix, and uh, Charles is my first cousin. Everybody calls Emmanuel Nix Manny. On the first day I sat with Manny, he had just gotten home from a funeral. He was dressed in a suit and despite the somber day, proved he was a man who could instantly pivot from deadly serious to hilarious. Like when I asked him about his life after his time in the Navy. I, I got a good job. It didn't take me but a couple of years to, to settle down and start trying to seek some other goals that I'd had all my life, like owning my own house. I wanted five kids, but I got three and I was like, Phew. Man, that was close. <laughs> yeah, and I love them all. I'm proud of all of them, too. Manny stopped laughing when we got back to talking about his cousin and Manny's belief that Charles Wakefield Jr. was railroaded. In Manny's mind, a convenient patsy. And in Manny's mind, an all-too-familiar story. It might have sounded like something I might have had seen before more than once or twice. Because for Manny Nix, the Charles Wakefield the cops were describing, a brazen, heartless man, who would put a single bullet behind the ears of a father and son. That wasn't the Wakefield Manny knew when they grew up together. It didn't sound right at all. And, and, and with an understanding of how our communities were policed at the time, it was not hard to believe that the truth might not be solved. It took me a second to understand what Nix had said there. 
but he said it again and again, how he remembers Greenville police. The truth might not be sought. Put another way, the cops might have been around, but in Manny's memory, they weren't necessarily looking for the truth. You mentioned how your communities were policed at the time. For the people, number one, who didn't grow up in your communities or two, weren't around the South then, describe to people who don't understand how your communities were policed. I think it was sometimes policed with aggressions rather than trying to understand and work with the people that they were responsible to police. A lot of them may have come in with uh, preconceived ideas about black people. They didn't live in our communities. Manny's point was this. The cops might have already started hiring black men to work on the force. But even then, they weren't necessarily their neighborhoods. And the white cops? Well, they might as well have been from a different planet. They policed our neighborhoods different. And there was a lot of problems. Manny talked for a little bit, and I heard what I was pretty sure was anger rising up in his voice. And I told him so. He responded by telling this horrifying, modern, familiar story of police trying to work in communities and being afraid to respond with anything other than gunfire. <laughs> no, I ain't really mad, but you know what I mean? I'm not frustrated about it, you know, because to some extent, I believe some of them were, were more afraid of being down in there than we were of them coming to pick us up. And that kind of fear, a lot of time, you know, you, shit, man, it might blank out. Just, oh, Lord, and all of a sudden, I got a gun, got a taser, boom, you done shot him five times. Bob, hold it up. You know what I mean? I, I ain't saying they was all racist and they were just coming to get us. Yeah, some of them were afraid, not just to our communities, but some, some white communities too. It was like, okay, you know, call for more. Goddamn, I'm going in. It was a workout to keep up with Manny's gallows humor about scared cops. But it was how he dealt with trying to figure out why. Why the investigation into the Looper murders went the way it did. Why Charles? Why him? As Manny saw it, because the suspect in the Looper murder case was a poor black man, it made the case easier for the police than if the man running out of the Looper garage had been a white guy. It was not hard for me to believe that the truth would probably not be sought any way it went. It wouldn't be treated like uh, it was someone not of color. It would have been investigated deeper. More questions would have been asked. More people would have been interviewed. More opportunity would have likely been given to him to prove his innocence at that time. That discussion of race, class, and power. It's a hard discussion to have, even in 2019. There are a lot of layers to it, and even after half a century of talking more openly, folks still have a hard time coming to any consensus. It wasn't like you see on television. Lynn West was the guy who talked to people when they got thrown in jail to determine if they needed a public defender, a guy who, before landing that job, planned to be a cop. Instead, he spent three decades helping people accused of crimes find an attorney. Back then, you had only cop shows in which everybody was guilty as I don't know what, and then you run across people who who have uh, a lot to lose. You had plenty of guilty people. Then you had people who were questionable, and then you had people who were totally innocent of what they were charged with. West started that job the same year somebody killed the Loopers, the same year the police arrested Wakefield. Greenville, South Carolina was in a rather manic time. There was a new solicitor, 
the county was building a new law enforcement center. And West was just trying to figure out how to talk to people accused of crimes. It was hard because people would ask you a thousand questions and they think you're an attorney and you tell them, I'm not an attorney, I'm only here for this. And that was pretty hairy at the time. It was new buildings, new people, new operations, new personnel that you had to deal with. But I grew up with the bunch that, was, that started in basically 76 on up until the present time right now. The bunch he's talking about are the attorneys, the cops, the jailers, the prosecutors, and the criminals. He watched all of them pushing and pulling against each other. Public defenders pulling for black and white folks, and the police and prosecutors pushing them into a corner. Then when you see somebody pulling harder than the other person is, that makes you wonder, is this really fair and balanced? I looked at it from a different set of glasses. I took off the sunglasses and then I put on the clear glasses and then I could see. I just saw it differently. It just didn't seem to be fair anymore. But West was young, still learning the system. And though he was troubled by what he saw, he just kept working, hoping he'd see the system balance itself. It was just a push and pull thing for me. I, I had mixed emotions about it, but I tried I tried then, after about a year, just devoiding myself of that emotions and just saying, do your job. You're not a prosecutor, nor are you a defense attorney. So just do what you're supposed to do and, and move on, and hopefully everything else would take its place. That was the hope, but even Lynn West looks back at cases cases like Charles Wakefield's, and thinks everything didn't take its place. Rather, everything took the wrong place. West is among the people in Greenville, South Carolina, who wonder, what in the hell actually happened? Why was Wakefield the one? Why wasn't it somebody else? Now, here's the thing. It almost was somebody else. That someone else came up during a moment in my interview with Billy Wilkins, the prosecutor in 1975. I was dealing with another why the hell question. During the Wakefield trial, why didn't Wilkins call the first eyewitnesses who saw someone running out of the Looper garage after the murders? My question led to this exchange. Well, why didn't the defense call the witnesses, the eyewitnesses? I don't know that they knew about them, <laughs> to be honest with you. Really? Yeah, I mean, if you, plus, I mean. They knew about Larry Poole. Larry Poole. Larry Poole was a man already convicted of murder, on the loose on the run in January of 1975. Within days of the crimes, Poole was among the chief suspects in the Looper murders and stayed that way longer than you could possibly imagine. That is coming up right after this break. Spending 40 hours a week working a job and 40 hours that same week working on a podcast, there's not a lot of time to think about what my body needs. And let's be honest, trying to figure out what vitamins or supplements to put in my body? It's always been a mystery. Care of makes it easier. It's a service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs. Last week, I took this fun five-minute online quiz, answered some easy questions. How much sleep are you getting? Do you need something to support weight management? Are you looking for more energy? Care of figures out a personalized care of plan for you and then sends what you need, daily vitamin packs, protein powder, right to your door. Now, Care of is offering Murder Etc. listeners a special deal. For 25% off your first Care of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter Murder ETC. So now I'm starting my day with one packet of Care of's Extra Batteries Supplement. And if I need something else down the road, I can change my order. If you want to try it out, for 25% off of your first Care of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter Murder ETC. 
It's important to acknowledge the hours after the Looper murders were hours of chaos. Cops were literally running through West Greenville, at least one willing to blow out the brains of Looper's killer, and at least two searching so hard the top brass at the police department would spend months cleaning up after them. Andy Etheridge and I took a research trip not too long ago. During the ride, I told him about one of the sillier things that happened in all the chaos. On the day of the murders, you know, they're sweeping West Greenville. And they go over there. A couple of cops hear that there's a black man has run into this house. So they run up there and they knock and they knock and it won't happen. So they did do what the cops do and they bust the door in. Now, it turns out there's nobody in there except for a lady who is pissed off that her door got broke down. She's like, what are you going to do about the door? That guy, we'll, we'll get it taken care of. Sorry, ma'am. They leave. Days and days go by, and you see these memos start to filter into the police file where Jennings is like, shit, I thought we had this taken care of. And she's down here mad again. The memos are flying back and forth. And in short, it's a mess for the police captain, who is about to be the police chief, Harold Jennings. And we sent the carpenters, the carpenters are there, and he's having, you know, he's having to deal with the minutia of cops knocking down doors and trying to find carpenters to build it, while at the same time, you know, he's got his lead vice detective out working on the biggest case of the year. I'm surprised there's only one, only one door kicked down that day. Andy had a point. The way the tips were coming in, honest citizens looking for justice, people trying to get their enemies arrested, the police were running all over the place. Think about that right up against what Billy Wilkins said. Within 24 hours of the Loopers being murdered, John Olin told Christopher, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. Wilkins said that word came from a longtime police informant, one of Jim Christopher's street snitches, a fence named John Olin Butler. According to Wilkins, Butler was the first man to put Christopher on Wakefield's trail. Andy saw a pattern forming. Wyatt Earp Harper, a jailhouse snitch, a woman you'll hear about soon, John Olin Butler, all so eager to talk. So many people, the string of, of jailhouse, it seems like everybody wants to talk about it. What is that for? What is that to, to gain favor with the local police? Is it is it just to, to interject yourself into the story? Why? And they just lie. I mean, they're just, they're just, so all it takes is for, I mean, Harper said he lied. The girl you mentioned just said she lied. All it would take was, was John Olin Butler lying, and this whole thing takes a different trajectory. We may never know whether John Olin Butler was lying to Jim Christopher. Butler said the word on the street was Wakefield. But there was another word on the street, one much louder. It's two words, actually. They knew about Larry Poole. Larry Poole. Larry Poole was a convicted murderer. Police said in May of 1970, Poole shot and killed a 60-year-old taxi driver named Hal Jones in the parking lot of Poinsett Mill. It took police seven months to close the case, and in December of 1971, a judge sentenced Poole to prison for life for the murder and gave him four nine-year sentences for armed robbery. In less than two years, Poole was out of prison. A murderer on a life sentence escaped, likely because he was at a minimum security facility in Greenville County. Sixteen months later, the Loopers were dead, and word on the street was, Larry Poole did it. Riding down the highway in the truck, Andy worked through it in his head. Then you start looking, and he is a early something, or early 20s black male fugitive. Uh, looks a, a lot like the composite drawings. Fits the, the description fairly well. Andy was right about that. But here's what nobody else ever heard. 
30 days before the Loopers were killed, Larry Poole's name had already come up. Someone told cops they could put their hands on Poole and ask about a reward. Then two days after the murder, a man called in, gave his code name as the number 403, and said he was an informant for Jim Christopher. Number 403 said he'd just seen Larry Poole in a Pontiac Grand Prix. Another woman told cops Larry Poole had written his mother and said he was coming to Greenville to take care of some unfinished business. That same informant said she was related to Poole by marriage and that she heard Poole killed the Loopers. Two days later, on February 4th, police got another tip saying Poole was in town and searched a Greenville County apartment for him. Wakefield might have been the word on the street, but the street itself was paved with Larry Poole. And that was before Beverly Ann Johnson ever started talking. Not only does she say that, but an almost apropos of nothing compared, like related to that, she tells the cops that somebody had also seen Larry Poole that day driving around in a red Camaro with Frank Walker. That is me again in Andy's truck, trying to unpack one of the more startling things I'd read in the police file. Not that Beverly Johnson had seen Larry Poole in town, but that she had put him in a car with Frank Walker. You might remember that name. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hash's ribs and pulls the trigger. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head because there's blood everywhere. Frank Walker, former deputy, contract killer. Someone tells the cops he's riding around with Larry Poole, and the cops don't seem too interested in Walker. Three weeks later, Walker executed Bugs Hassey and dumped his body on Paris Mountain, while the cops searched high and low for Larry Poole for what seemed on first reading of the file to be a good reason, given by Beverly Johnson. After being essentially cornered in the bathroom by one of the cops, tells a story. And that story is that Larry Poole, the fugitive on the run for the murder. On February 4th, a dozen or more cops stormed into an apartment where a 19-year-old woman lived. Beverly Ann Johnson said most of the men carried shotguns, and two of them, men she would later call Kelly and Ross, took her into the bathroom. They eventually left her there with another man. But before the end of the night, Larry Poole's name wasn't just two words on the street. It was all over the map, from South Carolina to Pennsylvania to New Jersey to New York. Has showed up at her house and he wants a few things. One, he wants to be able to hang out for a while and he wants to have sex and he wants to use heroin with her. He also wants some cake or something else sweet to eat. But that's not the point. The point is, according to Beverly Johnson, on February 4th, Larry Poole, who also went by the nickname Baku, had a gun and said he had used it that day. Beverly Johnson didn't have any cake that night or desire to shoot up or desire to lay down with a killer. But she had a story. She really has zero interest in any of those things. Um, I think she gives him a meal or something like that. But while he's there, he says to her, I killed a pig today. And so, Within one typewritten statement given to Officer Furman Paris and County Narcotics Deputy Al Ashmore, Beverly Ann Johnson said Larry Poole, one, was in Greenville looking for places to rob with Frank Walker, two, was carrying a gun, three, had confessed to killing a law enforcement officer. So what happened? From that point, the case against Poole seems to get even more complicated and involve Charles Wakefield Jr. Beverly Ann Johnson signed her statement on February 4th. You know what happened before that? Probably not, because it wasn't the sort of thing that showed up in the newspapers. The strange thing about it 
is when it started going downhill, it spiraled. Everything that could go wrong, went wrong. And for whatever reason, once it started going downhill, there wasn't anything or anybody that could like step in and stop the spiral down. There wasn't anybody. There wasn't anybody willing to step forward or nothing. If there was a time anyone might've stopped it, it was a couple days after the murder when Charles Wakefield passed a polygraph test. Detective Mike Bridges drove Charles Wakefield to SLED headquarters in Columbia. There, a longtime SLED agent hooked Wakefield up to a polygraph machine, a lie detector test. According to Bridges' report, the SLED agent said Wakefield showed no, and Bridges underlined the word no, no knowledge whatsoever of the Looper murders. No knowledge whatsoever. But Wakefield said he suspected someone, someone named Larry Poole, after the test, Bridges asked Wakefield why he thought Poole did it. Wakefield's answer? Because Lieutenant Jim Christopher had shown Wakefield a picture of Larry Poole just before Wakefield had gone to be polygraphed, and no other reason than that. Someday, after we wade through the absolute mess of the spring and summer of 1975, I'm going to tell you about a beloved old woman, a Salvation Army worker, a mother, a grandmother, and what seemed to be the only nail in Charles Wakefield Jr.'s coffin that wasn't crooked. A woman who was, as prosecutors told that at trial, reluctant to tell her story. She was Billy Wilkins' star witness. She's such an honest Christian woman that if she's asked, she'll tell it. But she's not going to volunteer it. The woman claimed she saw Charles Wakefield Jr. outside the Looper garage just before the murders. In the weeks before prosecutors finally indicted Charles Wakefield, Detective Bridges went to this woman's home and put six photos down in front of her. He asked her if any of the men in the photos were the men she saw outside the garage. The woman looked at the photos and picked out two men. She picked Charles Wakefield and Larry Poole. These are things people reading the newspaper never read. The jury heard very little of it. Most of it sits in the police file, the one Wakefield attorney Eric Gottlieb read nearly 20 years ago. Gottlieb followed the paper trail like a road map, where one-way roads kept running into each other, head on. Look, it's not rocket science. You read the transcript, and then you read the police file, right? That, that was huge. Talk about huge moments. Getting access to that police file. I mean, that was just a gold mine of information that really made it easy to, to sort of see what happened, see, watch it unfold in, in real time by following the documentation. And following that map, it's easy to see. If Wakefield was that black man running out of the Looper garage, then it wasn't Larry Poole. But if it was Larry Poole, then it wasn't Charles Wakefield. Something had to give. What gave was Beverly Ann Johnson. Right after prosecutors indicted Wakefield, police went looking for Beverly Johnson. It took a while to find her. They eventually did, and suddenly her story about seeing Larry Poole, about the heroin, the chocolate cake, killing a pig, she said she made it all up. Because one of the cops, one she described as a short little man with black-rimmed glasses, told her Larry Poole murdered the Loopers. 
and then told her she would be charged with the murders if she didn't tell the truth about it. After Wakefield's indictment, Johnson said she hadn't seen Poole in years and wouldn't have said so if not for that little man in glasses. Now, back again to what Andy said in the truck. Seems like everybody wants to talk about it. What is that for? What is that to, to gain favor with the local police? Is it is it just to, to interject yourself into the story? Why? And they just lie. Well, there was one undated supplemental note in the police file. It was from Furman Paris, one of the two cops who took the initial statement. The memo was about Beverly Ann Johnson, a woman who was supposed to be serving 60 days in the city stockade. The bottom of the memo read that cops told Johnson they would try to, quote, help her on the rest of the 60 days she had to pull. There's more to that Larry Poole story I'll tell one day. But for now, what matters is that Charles Wakefield was the one that went to death row, not Larry Poole. On the day that Charles Wakefield bailed on the barbecue lunch, there was part of me that thought it was only because he was out on parole. But the more I talked to him and his family, it seemed as though they grew up thinking it was just a matter of time before someone tried to pin something on them. Are we actually in Cleveland Bar? We're on the very edge of it right here. Oh. So what about where they got the zoo and stuff at? Yeah, that's if you go, you gotta go back a ways in it to get there. There was that day last fall when Wakefield and I rode around in my truck. I was trying to show him the Greenville of his childhood and what had changed. So why you didn't go down there? Uh, to try to, but it's off Washington Street. I guess I could probably go down there. Oh, you think there are a lot of people down there? Well, maybe I mean, not a lot of people. Yeah, maybe not. I think I might actually do that. We'd been riding around for hours, and though we'd chatted along the way, I wanted to find somewhere free from road noise to talk to him, to interview him. But the fall for Greenville Festival was clogging up the roads downtown. I thought about an old park, Cleveland Park. It had been around for a long time, and now it was connected to the relatively new Falls Park. I thought I could get the, down there. The uh, Reedy River Park goes into Cleveland Park, yeah. right? Yeah, it bleeds right into it. Duh, yeah. And that was a smart idea, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It was a brilliant, they had a brilliant idea the whole thing. Everything was, you know, I don't know who, who made the decisions, but they were smart. I pulled into Cleveland Park and started looking for a place to record the interview. Yeah, yeah. When Charles spoke up. Yeah, this almost time to go. We'll go down, we'll talk for just a few minutes. There's just a few questions I want to ask. Yeah, I don't be hanging around down here too much. Yeah, I know. I found a parking spot with the tape recorder still rolling. We'll just uh, pull up here. I was hoping we'd find like a picnic table or something to sit but I can't find one that's quiet. That is where the recording ends. Because when we got out of the truck, Wakefield stood looked at the families out playing on a warm afternoon, listened to the sounds of joy and fun in the air, and he balked. There, in the dead center of Greenville's happiness, he was scared again. We climbed back into my truck and didn't record another word that day. When I was real little, we stayed on Doe Street and he lived in a house across the street that had some steps to go up to it. I, I considered it a big house. Now, when I go by there today as an older man, it doesn't seem so big. And we lived in a little, kind of like a duplex across the street from him. 
Eddie Cruel remembers his older cousin Charles as fearless. Not as an older cousin, but more like a big brother who had his back on the street. You know, he spent a lot of time over at our house with my mom. He and my mom got along. She loved him. And he was basically like a brother. Today, Cruel knows that brother as a scared 65-year-old man who spent three and a half decades in prison based on the testimony of a felon who later admitted to lying and a woman who had her first opportunity to pick out two suspects pointed to the pictures of Charles Wakefield and Larry Poole. Stop and think about the words we use when we talk about crime and punishment. Positive identification, sworn witness statement, eyewitness testimony. They're all phrases that have come to hold a lot of weight. They have power to persuade. They just sound like the truth and justice. That's how much society has come to value them. Society's need for law and order, laced with a positive ID, sworn statements, and eyewitness testimony, that's a cocktail that can send a man to prison forever. But looking back on how dead to rights Greenville police had Larry Poole, only to say later, nah, never mind. It's worth asking, do those words like positive identification really hold as much weight as we think? Or are they so light, police can, if they want, as they did with Larry Poole, just toss them into the breeze and watch them blow away like motes of dust, suddenly insignificant? Or, if they want, as they did with Charles Wakefield, sweep all of them up into a pile of dust and dirt and call it proof. A jury ultimately decides what justice is. The jurors in the Charles Wakefield trial heard one truth over the course of a few days, and they used what they heard to justify a death sentence. For those people who believe in Charles Wakefield's innocence, it's hard to look back at what the jury heard and hear truth ringing. But 44 years later, Charles Wakefield's friends and family are not clinging to words, words of an eyewitness or words on the street. They're clinging to hope that one day someone will finally use different words. Someday, someone will tell the truth. The truth will come out because it is true. The truth will set you free. You know, people that know Charles already know the truth. There are people that for their reasons and for whatever they're covering up, whatever they're, they're, they're hiding and using Charles to cover it up, uh, it, it will come out eventually. The truth will out one day. That'd be good for him. It'd be good for everybody. The truth is always good for everybody. Thanks for listening this week. If you'd like to see how police built and then dismantled the case against Larry Poole, visit our website, murderetcpodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. We also have Beverly Ann Johnson's two statements, the first implicating Larry Poole and the second, recanting the first. You'll find those in the section we call The File, where we keep documents and photos important to the case. If you'd like to see the full file we've built on Larry Poole and thumb through it yourself, check out Amateurs Etc., the new group of diehard Murder Etc. listeners who are combing through everything as closely as they can. You can learn more about Amateurs Etc. on the front page of our website or on our Facebook page. You might have heard about the road trip Andy Etheridge and I took recently. Between what we learned there and several developments, Murder Etc. needs a very quick production break to sort through it all and make sure we're not missing anything 
as we start to get into the most important parts of this story. We're coming back with our next full episode the week of June 17th. If you can't wait until then, join our Amateurs Etc. community today to get access to a members-only bonus episode next week. That's when we'll dive deeper into that phone call Leonard Brown recorded with Bub Skelton and let you listen to a little bit more of what Brown recorded back in the day. And join us on that deep dive just by signing up for Amateurs Etc. And by the way, thanks to all of you who joined us this week in the Amateurs Etc. community, especially listener David Garrett, who signed up for the highest level of support he could. Thanks, David. We appreciate you very much. Finally, if you're local to upstate South Carolina, there's a good chance Andy Etheridge and I are going to be making another short road trip that's partly research, partly fun, and partly a chance to meet some of our local listeners. Keep an eye on the Murder Etc. Facebook page for more information on that. Amateur Etc. members, listen next week for the bonus episode. Everybody else, we'll be back in two weeks with the next full episode of Murder Etc. Murder Etc.